Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to season two of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, a casual and we hope revealing conversation with Jim and I and our guest of the week that helps to go behind the scenes and really tell the story of what's going on. Today, we're lucky to have Nate Fick, the first U.S. ambassador to large for cyberspace and digital policy. Prior to coming to state, Ambassador Fick was a technology executive and an entrepreneur, including CEO of the cybersecurity software company Endgame and a VC. He was also CEO of the Center for New American Security here in D.C. and a best-selling author. We'll talk about his very broad and somewhat challenging portfolio. So on that note, Nate, how do you like the new job? I mean, I love it. I Look, I, I joke that I... Uh... You know, I skip through the turnstile every morning, but it's but it's really true. I it's it's the most consequential portfolio at the most interesting time. So it's a kind of a curious person's paradise. You you never wake up in the morning morning wondering why you go to work. I love it. How's the department done at accommodating what's pretty much a new field for diplomacy? And then we'll I mean, look, I, I think creating creating new things inside bureaucracies is hard has that reputation for a reason. But I think there's widespread understanding that this is really important, that tech policy and foreign policy are increasingly inseparable, that we can't practice any kind of bilateral, regional, multilateral diplomacy or any other functional diplomacy without tech being part of it. And it's one of the secretary's highest priorities. So that shared understanding and the support from the top together have been really helpful. I, maybe a, a third thing I'd add is the number of issues on which there seems to be enduring bipartisan consensus on the Hill is is getting shorter. This remains one of those issues. So that's been a great help. That That's something I always enjoyed is that even testifying on the Hill with little things on either side uh, that, that, that normally there was bipartisan support for this, that people understood why this was important why it was important to our future economically, but also as a security matter. There didn't seem to be a lot of dissension on that, which is great. And hopefully that can continue. I meet I meet pretty frequently with with both members and staff from the minority and the majority in the House and the Senate. And the conversations are empirical, supportive, aligned. It's just it's been it's been positive so far. Now they haven't had, you know, I think even since I was there, they haven't actually had formal testimony on the Hill about this or hearings about this, which testimony is always a two-edged sword, as you know. It's always, it's not necessarily the most fun thing to do, but 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 also it's a way to get your message out about what you're doing and, and, and things like that. Do you think that that is just because it's been very organic, good cooperation, or do you think that's going to come as a way to highlight what you and the department are doing in this area in the future as they get further down this road? Yeah, I think it's certainly coming. I, I I expect to testify probably this fall. And I, I think it's just sort of naturally year, year and a half in, time to yeah. check in, in in a more public way about it. Yeah, and you'll have, well, that, that's the other thing we can turn to in a moment, the strategy. But before you get there, yeah, I think one of the framing issues, and, and this is something I think Jim and I both argued for as they were creating this, which was them to integrate these issues in the way they did, the, the economic, the security, and the human rights issues. But- at the same time, that's not that easy. And balancing or giving full weight to each of those issues is not always that easy. How how have you found that? 
I, I agree that it, integrating them is the right thing to do. I'm, I'm glad to have had uh, predecessors and credible folks outside of government making the case. I would even add the emerging tech portfolio yeah, to the three. Sure. It's it's not inside the bureau, but it is inside my remit as the special envoy for critical and emerging tech. And I, I think what we see is these three things, four things really are increasingly intertwined, inseparable, and in some ways converging even. And so I think I think you're right that that then the it becomes important to make sure you're emphasizing them the right way. Eileen Donahoe's appointment as coordinator and special envoy for digital freedom is a big step in that direction. I think the digital freedom leg of the stool had been the shortest, partly because the resources on that topic are spread across a few different organizations. But putting Eileen, her global network, her convening power, her expertise and reputation in that role really helps us to even things out. Well, just on that, it's great to have different sections of your office. You have different directorates or offices within the Bureau focusing on these different issues. How are you getting them to kind of, I mean, one of the challenges is getting them to come together, you know, as a more cohesive whole. And and Maybe I'm just wondering how that, you're doing that. Building yeah. on that, tell us about what the interagency is like. The state's been in kind of a weak position for a while. So how do you build within the bureaucracy? How do you build with other agencies? Yeah, I think, I think the first question about how to, you know, how do you get these things to work together one of the things I saw in the startup world as an entrepreneur and an investor again and again and again is that a company's first website tends to mirror for the world its internal organization. But the reality is nobody cares what a company's internal organization is, right? It doesn't matter. It only matters to the people in the company. And so that's kind of a, a mantra of mine at State is we should not in the Bureau be mirroring for the world our internal organization. Because our partners and allies and counterparts, you know, in the private sector and civil society, they don't care. They want an integrated approach to problems, right? Where cybersecurity and, and digital infrastructure and human rights issues are dealt with holistically. So I think one of the things that we've been trying to do is stop reflecting in the world our internal org chart. Because I, I think that's a very normal stage of organizational maturity, but it's an early stage and you got to go past it pretty quick. In terms of the interagency, I think, like I said in my confirmation hearing, I understand the skepticism of putting another cook in the cyber kitchen. You know, there, there are a lot of people with pieces of this portfolio, but as you know, Chris Inglis used to say, I think so compellingly, it's a horizontal, it's a lateral. And I think it is to our advantage, not to push it into a cyber force, into a digital ministry, into a cyber czar. It is a lateral. And the missing piece in a lot of ways was elevating the diplomatic element and sort of giving it a, a seat at the table alongside the others. And so, frankly, I've found the interagency to be pretty welcoming of it. There was a sense that that state needed to do more here. Others were stepping in and filling roles that a lot of people believe should be filled by state, but they're happy to relinquish it now that there's more muscle behind the portfolio at the department. What are the issues you're looking at beyond cyber? What are the big issues on your plate? And we can come back to cybersecurity. But... Yeah, I mean, that is worth reminding folks. I, I think that because of the title, people think that cybersecurity is 90% of the of the portfolio, but it's not. It's you know, I don't know, 25 or 30%. The other big pieces are 
digital infrastructure broadly. I, I think about that as the the architecture of the internet. You know, the guts that get the internet into your office or into your phone. That's cable and fiber. It's wireless networks. It's satellites. It's data centers with everything virtualizing. The the other half of that digital infrastructure piece really is the the digital regulatory side, particularly with with European colleagues. So that, that's a large piece of it. There's the the critical and emerging tech portfolio, quantum, synthetic biology, and of course, AI. We could allow things to become AI all the time right now, given the, the sort of dynamic in the world. One thing I'm trying to, to, to move us away from is treating the digital freedom portfolio as a standalone vertical. I think it's much more helpful to think about that as the values-based foundation on which everything else is built. Now, I think... You know, it's funny, we lived the past many times and and that's <laughs> been an effort we've tried to do for a while. And even within yeah. the Freedom Online Coalition, I know you participated in a big US meeting last week in New York on this. There was great work done on the intersection of security and freedom online like seven years ago. And then it was sort of yeah. lost to the ages and now it's being brought that's back, right. which is great. I think you're right. It's an undercurrent. It is one, it's a foundational part of those other things. And the more that your bureau can promote that, I think the better off we are in thinking about these other policies too. So, so, so let me just refer then to the Freedom Online Coalition event you were at last week because that's part of your portfolio too. How, how did that go? Where do you see that process going? Yeah, it, listen, it went well in the sense that we had three dozen foreign ministers, digital ministers, or their senior surrogates around the table, focused on kind of rights respecting technology development, deployment, use in the context of this UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And Undersecretary Zaya Jay was there with me. The Secretary Blinken came in and, and emphasized to the group how important it is to him. And I think that we we have a, a, a moment here where you've got two very different paradigms in the world now around what the proper role of tech is. And a lot of states who are not fully in one camp or the other, how do we deal with that? You know, is it a, is it a pound the table my way or the highway moment? I think not. I, I think actually that's not the most effective diplomatic strategy. I think embracing a little bit more of the, of the variable geometry idea of, of recognizing that Many states may not be fully monogamous, and we have to be pragmatic about that. And I, I think that was the, the tone and tenor of the conversation. And in a lot of places, if, if the U.S. shows up and the U.S. articulates you know, a positive, affirmative, inclusive vision for what that tech can do, not all the time, but oftentimes people respond to that. But this administration, perhaps unfairly, is seen sometimes as a bit skeptical of the UN. So what do you see your work in the UN doing? I know it's not your primary thing, but it certainly touches on a lot. Of, you mentioned the SDGs. We have the endless OEWG. I mean, what what's going on? Look, I think any, any rational human being is going to be skeptical of the UN. The Secretary General himself is skeptical of the UN. It's very hard to get momentum and consensus with such a diverse body. And it's also essential. I, look, I, I brought to this role, I confess, a bit of a CEO's temperament. And multilateral diplomacy does not necessarily uh, comport with that. And 
it's it's so important. 20 years of ground game diplomacy at the UN got us the framework for responsible state behavior in cyberspace. That's no mean feat. I and we refer to it all the time as a significant basis for the legitimacy of our positions, the moral authority of our positions. I think when we we look at uh, broad issue sets around the sustainable development goals, things that most human beings on earth will acknowledge are important, things like better climate modeling and weather forecasting and medical diagnostics and agricultural productivity. And you think about what the application of emerging tech can do, given that something like 85% of those things are currently off track if we're looking at 2030 goals, there's, there's a meaningful role for the UN. And this administration, in my view, has invested quite a lot and continues to, if, if for no other reason than a, a really stark demonstration, I would say, in the last half decade or so, that when the United States takes a step back from these broad multilateral bodies, it's not as if all we do is save money and time. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? And when the U.S. steps back, our adversaries fill that void. And then we end up in a worse position than we were before. Maybe on that note, what's up with China? How much does China eat your portfolio? I think China is obviously a significant piece of the portfolio in across every dimension of it, from human rights to infrastructure to cybersecurity to emerging tech. The, the broad realignment of global supply chains obviously is, is pretty foundational to the tech landscape right now around the world. And we spend you know, 30 years or more, 40 years, optimizing supply chains of all kinds, but, but really tech supply chains foundationally or orienting them, optimizing them for one variable, and that was cost. And I think you know, between the pandemic and the, the, the reemergence of overt geopolitical competition, People realize that we should be we should be optimizing supply chains for more than one variable. Security matters, resilience matters, rights matter, and and that cuts across every piece of the portfolio. So we'll get back to China and Russia, I think, in a moment. But but just going back to the the UN question, something you said a little earlier about you know the session you had, and the UN had a mix of foreign ministers, ICT ministers, and others. You know. It's interesting, a lot of countries, and this is my view, I was a you know, prosecutor coming into state, and so I had the same view of, why aren't things happening quicker? Why isn't this more operational? But then you do learn the value, and I think one of the chief things about what you're doing is making this a foreign policy priority. So how, in other countries in particular, how much has this become the province or a job of the foreign minister? Because my, I love the ICT ministers, they're lovely people, but they're often not the highest level people in their governments. They're often focused on exclusively on more of the technical issues rather than the, the, the policy, security, human rights, and other issues. So, you know, to mainstream this around the world, you want those. And Tony, uh, Secretary Blinken certainly cares about this, but what are you seeing around the world on this now? Yeah, I think it's, there's still a lot of variety around how, how different countries address this portfolio, but there are a few trend lines. Uh, one of the trend lines is a, a growing cadre of tech ambassadors, cyber and and digital and and more broadly tech ambassadors, who are 
generally sitting inside a foreign ministry working with and for a foreign minister. And I, I agree that uh, that it's it's not always the cleanest when it sits with a digital minister who, you know, for whatever reason, often has, you know, transport or railroads or other kind of big sports. Yeah, or sports. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You end up with these sort of grab bags or entertainment and they're but they're they're oriented really around domestic economies and, you know, economic growth. And I think I think it's it's right that this sits sort of along that seam of economics and foreign policy. We are representing the point of view that uh, certainly in places like the G7 and the G20, the foreign policy aspects and strategic aspects ought to lead. And there, there may be other places in standard setting organizations, for instance, or multilateralization of the voluntary commitments of leading American AI companies, where, where it is right for a, a more economic focused uh, organization to lead. But yes, Chris, I think that the, the U.S. model that Secretary Blinken is leading is a is a foreign policy first orientation. So when you look at these people, your counterparts, what is it you want out of them? What's the background they have? Because honestly, they're a mixed bag. So when you what's an ideal digital ambassador, digital envoy for you? You, of course, yeah. have a model. It goes without saying. <laughs> I mean, look, look at, at, at realizing that we're all prisoners of our own experience. I, I think it's useful to have somebody who has a little bit of a little bit of technical understanding, given that the bulk of the talent sits in the private sector and the bulk of the you know innovative horsepower sits in the private sector. It is useful when an in interlocutor has some commercial sensibility, you know, who, who and and has the ability to build a partnership or or uh, craft a partnership with industry. Mm. It is. Uh, Obviously, it goes without saying that we want somebody who's who's you know somewhat like-minded, generally like-minded from a from a, a human rights and values online perspective. And then ultimately, I mean, as with any ambassador, right? They're they're really only as effective or as strong as their relationship with their home government. So we need somebody who sort of has a line, has a real decision-making authority. I, I don't I don't want it. It's much faster and easier to work with somebody who can agree to something you know, and make a deal rather than someone who's simply a conduit, you're playing a game of telephone. So I, I want to go back to the the other part of your portfolio, the the norms, the security, the rules of the road uh, that you talked about earlier. And I think you did a session in New York on this as well last week or some discussion about this. I mean, you're quite right. There's been good work staying in that framework, but the kind of missing piece or the problematic piece has been the accountability part. And now this kind of goes... This gets us back to Russia and China to some extent too, and some other actors. How how have you been taking that forward? What, what kind of coalition building and other things you've been doing to try to make that more effective than it's been in the past? Because frankly, you know, there's lots of bad actors still there, and the accountability piece has not been as strong maybe as it could be. So, so what what are your activities there? Before you yeah. touch that, maybe when you get done answering Chris's question, you can talk about where you think accountability ought to fit into the counter ransomware initiative, because that yeah. may yeah. be in the agenda. Yeah, I yeah. look, I, I, I talked about the framework for responsible state behavior. I think that having this normative framework that, that every state has agreed to repeatedly is a useful starting point. It then begs the question, and I, I, this is what you're obviously what you two are getting at, well, all right, but our adversaries and competitors don't really care about our norms. So what do you do then? 
certainly, you know, from from my perspective, before coming into government, I spent a dozen years building and leading a cybersecurity software company with business all, all over the world. And it, it felt to me then, and it feels to me now, very much like our adversaries and our competitors do things to us using cyber means that they would never do using other means because we have very clear declaratory and escalatory policies in other places, right? So we're in a 30-year deterrent hole with the PRC in terms of theft of IP from American critical infrastructure, from our innovation economy, from our defense industrial base, and from our government personnel systems. Uh, And there's been minimal accountability there. We've seen Russian state-sponsored or affiliated activity that has really sought to fundamentally undermine the functioning of American democracy in ways that had that been done using other means, you have to imagine we would have responded more muscularly than we have. So I, my point of view is that, and I, I, I hesitate to use the D word here with you two, but deterrence has not been fully extended into this domain. Really? Uh, That's I, astounding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's, and we could have an academic argument. We'd chase our tails for the rest of the hour talking about how applicable the concept is. And, and we but, often do. <laughs> yeah. But Although I think Jim, Jim defines deterrence differently than I do. So, it's, so we talk about Deterrence means something doesn't happen. <laughs> and that's not the case in cyberspace. That's right. I mean, doesn't you, mean you, you don't impose costs, so <laughs> you can't you can't prove a negative, right? So, or sure. you know, look look at the war in Ukraine. Absent NATO and other deterrent structures and policies, would we see? Would we have seen at this point, you know, 18, 19 months into the further invasion of Ukraine, would we have seen more nefarious Russian cyber activity outside Ukraine? Yeah, probably. I, I think we can probably credit deterrence with some amount of keeping the lid on this thing. But certainly it's not working enough. (laughs) So one of the tension points in the past has always been between state and uh, DOD, and particularly state and cyber command. And that was uh, at times a fraught relationship. And cyber command felt like state was a car that only had a brake pedal. So how do you work with those guys? Because if you're talking about imposing consequences... Although state also found that sometimes DOD, valuable as they were, only had a gas pedal. So. Oh, no, I agree. I agree. We haven't, we haven't yeah. found balance in the force, but maybe you have, yeah. Nate. Yeah, well, I, listen, I, I've, spent, I've spent more time with cyber command leadership than I have probably spent with any other single group of counterparts in the U.S. government because I view it as essential to the success of our diplomatic mission at state that we have a hand-in-hand relationship with Cyber Command uh, and with NSA. So my view and the view the view that I try to articulate with counterparts there and, and a view that, by the way, I believe they share is that we, we want to move to a world where cyber capabilities of all kinds are, are normalized, that we view them as tools of national power, that there's not a stigma attached to their use, and that they are subservient to, that is, they are, they are in the service of broader foreign policy objectives. Chief of mission authority inside a country ought to matter. Cyber tools need to be used in you know, holistically with broader foreign policy aims in mind. Campaign planning matters. 
It shouldn't be episodic whack-a-mole. And uh, I've found General Nakasone and, and his team to be fully aligned with that point of view, actually. Yeah. And, I think, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, we, uh, I'll give you an ex- a concrete example. So uh, we held our, our last U.S.-Ukraine cyber dialogue uh, early in the summer in, in Tallinn. And I sat at the table next to Lieutenant General Tim Hawk, the, uh, the deputy at Cyber Command, who's, who's the, the nominee to, to take over from General Nakasone. And I think it sends a powerful, positive message to our allies and to our adversaries to have our diplomats and our uniformed forces in this area sit literally sitting at the table shoulder to shoulder. That is the posture that we we want that to, bo- to be real internally. And we also want it to be how things are perceived around the world. I, I think that's I think you're right. That sounds a powerful, good, powerfully good message. Also, I think that in fairness, cyber commands and DOD's views on these topics have matured significantly over the last few years in terms of especially under General Nakasone, where it's evolved from let's try this to see if we can do it to, as you say, being more strategic and how to use these tools. And and I guess you know part of that is how. You know, there's always been this kind of orchestra conductor part of the White House uh, National Security Council that's tried to like make all these things to work together. How do you find that working? I mean, obviously, there's no substitute for your uh, engagement with DOD directly, but how do you think that's working with the interagency hey, at that? Chris, level? don't they call that leading the witness? <laughs> I I subscribe to the uh, traditional view of the role of the NSC, which is as the uh, I mean, a lot of folks refer to it as the Scowcroft model, kind of the honest broker of alternatives for the president. And I, my experience here in working with the NSC is that it is at its best when it is fulfilling that function. And having a more operational NSC can be challenging because, you know, if you want programs to have staying power, they really need to have the the support, the buy-in, the execution leadership of the agencies. So. My interagency dialogues at, at IPCs and deputies committee meetings on key cyber and digital topics ha- has generally been uh, constructive. And, you know, it seems to me that the process may- mostly works. And, you know, I, 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 I see the, dia- the public dialogue about this office or that office. But, you know, my experience is people are coming to the table with good intentions. Do we haven't asked any questions that put you on the spot? That almost did, but we'll have to think up some harder questions. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Fire away. <laughs> Just back on a, one DOD point before we leave that. It looks like either Congress approved or is about to approve or has been suggested to approve a pretty large package of money to be used by state and DOD. We, we talked to Mark Montgomery about this in a podcast a couple of weeks ago. And for capacity building, for working with partner countries and kind of a new model in the sense that DOD, the idea was DOD would work even more closely with state and your office in particular. How how do you foresee that going? I think it's a really important next step. I think Mark and the the other members of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which, which years ago recommended the creation of this role, have really continued to be terrific advocates now for the tools that we need in order for these roles to succeed. And the one analogy I would use, it's imperfect, but after 9-11, there was a broad recognition that somehow the world had changed and that we needed a different set of capabilities and authorities in order to respond in that new world. 
I, I think we're in a similar kind of phase shift here where it's been it's been frustrating to see that after the Iranian cyber attacks in Albania or after the Conti ransomware attack in Costa Rica, despite deploying people on the ground immediately, despite personal engagement by me and others immediately, it has taken too long to get to get dollars deployed, to get software deployed. And part of that's because we haven't had a dedicated mechanism. And so, yeah, I think we're pretty close to having a dedicated cyber and digital and emerging tech assistance mechanism that is going to help both from a resources standpoint, but maybe more importantly, from an authority standpoint, yeah. to, to, to get the kind of assistance that our partners need out the door and on the ground at the speed of tech or at the speed of our adversaries, not at the speed of legacy bureaucratic pathways. Well, and you can prioritize. I mean, I, I found that to be a real challenge when you have all these different buckets of money and and yeah. you were begging people for money all the time. And that doesn't actually lead to good policymaking because that capacity building part, and that, that's what I just want to turn to briefly too. You mentioned all these countries on the fence and there are lots of countries on the fence. Capacity building is obviously one way to reach them. How big a role does that, and obviously I care about this and thank you guys for supporting my organization, the GFC. You've been very supportive and good in that. But how how does that figure into your overall bureau plan, your overall strategy, how does that leg of that fit in? And, and what are you trying to do to advance that? Yeah, I, I think it's key, Chris. And I think there's a there's a sense that sometimes a sense, a, a misperception that capacity building means digital literacy for a minority group in a country that doesn't have kind of top tier strategic relevance to the United States. I would take a much broader view of what we mean by capacity building. I spent years building and selling security software and often found myself arguing against my narrow commercial self-interest and saying, look, this is really about people, process, and tech in that order. If you have $1 to spend, spend it on people almost every time, not on WhizBank software. So everywhere I go in the world from, frankly, very well-funded allies and counterparts in Europe to places all across the developing world, the common refrain is that people want more capacity, uh, more training of their people, more upgrading of their process, of their strategic approach, and yeah, upgrading of tools and software. But it's it's unanimous, uh, near unanimous. The need is near universal, and it is not strategically irrelevant. I think it's right at the core of building the kind of partners and allies that that we need. That might be a good lead into the final question we have, which is, tell us about the strategy. Strategies are Democrats-like strategies. They do a lot of them. A lot of times they're laundry lists. Sometimes people forget that a strategy isn't an end in itself. What do you, you what yeah. sort of preview can you give us? And yeah. what's the due date? It's December, or is that? Uh... Yep, it is. We have a draft that we're starting to circulate now. I think it's going to continue to evolve quite a bit with input over the the coming weeks and couple mm -hmm. of months. Maybe maybe at the level of philosophy, I'll give you a couple of points, and then and then maybe a couple of conceptual things. Philosophically, I, I am trying to bring to this again a perspective from my own personal background, which says that the essence of strategy is allocating scarce resources against infinite priorities. Mm -hmm. It is fundamentally an exercise in making choices. 
If it is a laundry list, we will have failed. So the, the, the development of the strategy is going to require saying no to lots of people, if it's going to mean anything. So my hope is that it will be a short document. It's going to be pretty crisp and concise. It is necessarily somewhat derivative, right? It is derivative of a national security strategy. It is derivative of a national cybersecurity strategy. So, you know, the, the box within which we're maneuvering here is not the whole world. But within that box, in addition to making choices, I think that a few things that we're likely to see, one, conceptually making the argument that we can't talk about cybersecurity narrowly in the way that we have at times in the past. In some ways, it mirrors the broader push in the Bureau to integrate the digital policy issues, the emerging tech issues, the rights issues, and, and kind of make a full-throated argument for why these things really ought to sit together and why our strategic approach needs to account for all of them. That's one broad point that I would make. Another broad point is that we need to lean into whatever the next conceptual stage is of engagement with the private sector. It's not just public-private partnership. It's something else. It's something more foundational, especially as we start to look at AI, where the balance of power at this point does not sit with governments anywhere in the world. And that requires us to start to think in some fundamentally different ways. So when you, you know, as just part of that, we didn't really hit on Russia, so maybe this is the place to talk on it. I mean, will the strategy, first of all, the strategy have like a classified annex or a sensitive annex, because you can't really prioritize necessarily in a public document what countries are going to get assistance, what countries are the chief adversaries, maybe some you can. And then second, you know, how do you look at that threat landscape, particularly not just on the cyber front, but in terms of strategic competition with China and Russia and perhaps others going forward? How do we position ourselves? Rob Joyce famously said, Russia's like a hurricane and China's like climate change, for instance. Like, how, how do you how do you cast that and how does the strategy maybe reflect that or will reflect that? Yeah, I think that uh, whether it has a classified annex remains to be seen. It's certainly going to have a classified, there will be classified presentations of the strategy. There's a there's a classified voiceover. Whether that evolves into an actual classified document, I think is TBD. In some ways, it would be more useful, I think, for all of our stakeholders if if there weren't. Like if if actually the yeah. document was the document. And and yeah, maybe conversationally you take it in different directions with different audiences, but I, I would like it if there were not a classified annex so that every reader of the strategy knows that he or she has the whole thing. Yeah. So I asked chat GPT this morning to come up with some AI guidelines. And <laughs> one of them was it said we should have an AI guideline for dress code. AI should have a dress code. <laughs> that, that seems to be about as useful as some of the others I've seen. But when it comes to, when it comes to what you're doing with strategy, this is a bigger question for your role and you're the first and that's cool. What are you, are you, building something positive? Are you thinking in security terms? Where, where do you see the main, you might have to do more than one, of course, but describe your effort for us. I mean, is, are you someone, I think some of us started thinking about this. We saw this very much in a political military context, at least I did. Clearly not adequate. And then there were others who argued, no, cybersecurity and emerging tech are economic issues, also not adequate. How do you define yourself? What's, you, what's the thing you want to leave? 
you know, I, I was a classics major, so I'm, I'm going to I'm going to fall back on that. It's sort of Janus faced. And remember the two, remember the two, the two faced Roman God. It is both. And the answer is we, we can't, we can't shoehorn it into one or the other. We have, I think strategic competition is endemic again to everything we do. Maybe it always was right, but it was below the waterline and now it's back above the waterline. That is a, that is an enduring truth. That is part of every conversation we have. But there's another enduring truth, which is, and I alluded to this earlier, I've got a couple daughters in middle school. And when I pound the table and say, hey, it's my way or the highway, that tends not to be an effective strategy. It's also not an effective diplomatic strategy. So in addition to the strategic competitive framework, I do think that positive affirmative vision matters. And, and it's not the hard versus the soft. They, they, are, they are two inextricably connected things because we have, again, the number of states that fall very squarely into one camp or the other camp is actually quite small. The vast majority of states are somewhere in the middle. The vast majority of GDP dollars in the world, the vast majority of people in the world, the vast majority of geography in the world, the natural resources and everything else falls in that middle. And there are some more consequential hedging states that are at the top of that list, but it's a big group. And so I, I don't think it is a failure to choose to say that, you know, actually we have to do both. We, we, we have to be clear-eyed in, in the strategic framing, and we have to be realistic about uh, the need to articulate a vision that actually people want to get on board with. Well, that, that goes, I think they're mutually reinforcing. Yeah, and that goes to the point of integrating all these messages. And I guess maybe to ask you a hard question, since we've not been as hard as maybe Jim thought we'd be. It raised a question, though, and this is a question, you know, when when I was in when we had the office in the secretary's office, we tried to mix all these things and it worked fairly well, although then the office was disappeared when the new administration came in. And one of the values of creating your bureau, one of the great values is it gives it more permanence, more staying power. But an open question is, where does it go? It's been reporting to Wendy Sherman, to the deputy while she was there. And now you know, we'll continue to do that. For a while, at least. I mean, that's what the founding document said while we figured this out. But as you say, it doesn't really fit within any of the existing stovepipes in the department. So what's your vision, or at least your hope, even if not your vision, of where yeah. it ends up in the future? Even uh, after look, you- I'll, I'll be I'll be very I'll be very direct on this because I don't think this is about me, you know, but at the at the, the, the given the pace of bureaucratic change, I'm gonna be, you know, back on my farm by the time uh, by the time any of this happens. But my point of view when asked is I, I kind of subscribe to the Eisenhower idea that when you get a hard problem, sometimes the right answer is to make it bigger. Mm-hmm. And if we make that question even bigger, I'd make the argument, Chris, that technology innovation as a source of national power is increasingly foundational, that traditional measures like GDP or military capacity are more and more downstream of a state or a coalition's ability to innovate in in the technology sphere. So this is increasingly foundational to our foreign policy. I think that if you shoehorn it within existing structures, you're not gonna be able to recognize that. It doesn't sit cleanly within E at the State Department. It doesn't sit within J. It certainly doesn't sit within T. It doesn't even sit within P. 
And the end run to the deputy reporting structure is a really useful construct to jumpstart it, get it going, build it bureaucratically, but it's not tenable forever. So I think what we're doing here is incubating a new nascent undersecretariat, a recognizing that this is an increasingly cross-cutting foundational part of the foreign policy landscape. And you can look around the department and see the other elements where important tech work is being done. And I would make the argument that those ultimately ought to be consolidated in essentially a, a larger and more senior organization that recognizes the importance of the portfolio. I so like we're that. At time, we're at time. <laughs> what did we miss? What final plug do you want to make? <clears throat> I mean, look, the, maybe the last thing I would add is people. Like we, we Ultimately, we need people inside the Foreign Service and the Civil Service to really believe that, that these issues are important, not only to their work abstractly, but to their careers. And we need people to throw in for a two-year tour, three-year tour, four-year tour with this portfolio, with, with the Bureau, with S-Tech. And I, I view it as it's sort of incumbent on me and us, our first generation of leadership in this new thing, to make sure that it's a it's a pathway to future opportunity for people. Right. Great. Well, thanks, Nate. Really appreciate you being here. And uh, great. Take it it's, uh, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you both. And and listen, really, both of you have been intellectual progenitors of this thing. And and really, I appreciate all the work that went before us, and have been grateful for your continued counsel over the past year. Please, please continue. We need well, God it. God knows you need help if you're depending and, on us. And, and Chris, <laughs> I'm just waiting for like, I know I'm going to have my frustration in, in five years or 10 years when like people are doing again stuff that we already did. And I'm going to be tearing my hair out and saying, no, you know, look, it's better it's done again than lost in time. So yeah, uh, there we go. I think I, you know, you're look, here to tear out. So. That's all right. <laughs> I, I, I would say that, you know, just on your last point. We started some of the things that you're doing, but I think you've taken them like the getting envoys and use the embassies or, or people slugged to these issues. Good. Started that, but you're expanding. I think I think you need that continuity. You need that extra injection of priority and that. And so grateful for all the work you're doing. And, in this yeah, just one last thing I'd say to the continuity point. Another person who's been incredibly generous to me personally and to us organizationally is Keith Kroc, the, the E from the last administration. So Keith's, Keith's worldview on a lot of these issues, Keith's commitment to building the, the institution of the department on these issues and human capital has been terrific. And so, again, I feel like any of us as political appointees are custodians for a short while. And it's really important, regardless of what happens next November, that that we maintain continuity of policy here. Because the, the most frust- maybe the most frustrating question or comment that I get from counterparts around the world is when they sort of look at me sideways and say, yeah, but what's going to happen next year? Yeah. It, it needs it needs not to matter, you know, or, or matter as, as little as possible. Yeah, Keith and uh, Rob Strayer did a lot of the foundational work. Yeah. They, they deserve some of the credit for Germany's decision on Huawei. So a good yeah. bipartisan note to end on. Matters. All right. Thanks okay. to you both. Thanks Great. a lot. Thank you.